DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Whether your nonprofit has had DEI at its core since inception, or you're just now hearing about it for the first time, DEI programs should be evaluated both at conception and on an ongoing basis. Otherwise, these good intentions may sometimes have unintended and negative consequences for your organization. In this episode of the PBPA podcast, Abby Larimer will speak to us about how to legally focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion in your workplace. Hello and welcome to the PBPA podcast. In each episode of the PBPA podcast, we explore legal questions relevant to Georgia nonprofits. I'm your host, Sarisha Gunta, Council and Education Director at the Pro Bono Partnership of Atlanta. PBPA strengthens our community by engaging volunteer attorneys to provide nonprofits with free business legal services. We provide numerous free resources via our website, including articles and webcasts specific to Georgia nonprofits and their business legal concerns. We also provide direct legal services to our clients. For more information on client eligibility requirements, to apply to be a client, or to access our VAST Learning Center, visit our website at pbpatl.org. Before we jump into this episode's topic, keep in mind that this podcast is general information, not legal counsel. Contact your attorney for guidance on your nonprofit's specific situation. Abby Larimer is a longtime PBPA volunteer and counsel at the law firm of Ford Harrison. Abby concentrates her legal practice on the representation and counsel of management in a broad range of matters related to employment law, which makes her a fantastic person to answer our questions today. Thanks for being here, Abby. Thank you for having me. So DEI initiatives are intended to create a better, stronger workplace, but sometimes they can lead to lawsuits. So to start us off, can you give us some very high level feedback on potential legal concerns around DEI programs? Absolutely. And I think that this is such a great question because it's something that organizations really need to think about before they're implementing a DEI initiative. When you're talking about DEI initiatives, obviously one of the main focuses is going to be on different protected groups, whether it's based on someone's race or gender, um, disability, sexual orientation, um, anything else that could be considered a protected group. So nonprofits or any company that is thinking about putting a DEI initiative in place needs to think about uh, Title VII and all of the issues that can come along with that or any other employment discrimination law on a state, um, state basis as well depending on what states are located in. So keeping in mind that traditionally with disparate impact treatment, um, the framework looks at intentional actions of discrimination. But one thing that comes up a lot in DEI initiatives, there's a focus on unconscious bias and implicit bias and how that factors into hiring and recruiting recruiting, and then even promotion efforts in a company once someone is in the organization. Typically, courts have been reluctant to consider implicit bias evidence um, as evidence of discrimination, but that is something that is starting to change right now. Uh, The EEOC also 
specifically includes in the definition of intentional discrimination, unconscious stereotypes about abilities, traits, or performance of certain racial groups or other protected classes. So that's definitely, um, you know, a huge thing to keep in mind, unconscious bias and implicit bias and educating your workforce on, on that. There are also some employment and privacy concerns that come in. For example, you know, some uh, protected classes or protected groups, it, it may be obvious, but others may not. And then there's a reliance on employees to self-identify. Uh, employees may not want to do that because of, again, different, different privacy concerns. And so that's something else to keep in mind um, that could give rise to some sort of legal action, you know, depending on what we're talking about here is a disability, sexual orientation, you know, race, even in gender as well. And so it's something nickname for these. It's like the, the benevolent discriminator, someone who really is trying to do the right thing, but ultimately, unfortunately, ends up discriminating by not looking at the bigger picture um, and keeping all of these different um, objectives and criteria in mind. Oh, that's interesting. So for an organization that's reevaluating their hiring practice, do you have any suggestions for how to improve, improve diversity hiring? while still avoiding legal pitfalls? Yeah, so I think the most important thing is to use objective criteria and make sure that's set in place. Having a job description in advance is certainly very helpful because that's going to make the organization think about, you know, what are we really looking at? What are we trying to, um, you know, fill in this position? Um, and, and that can really help defend you against uh, a claim of discrimination if someone tries to say, you know, it was actually someone's someone's race. And we, we are seeing cases where um, people are suing, um, you know, saying that they were passed over for, for a job because of their, um, they weren't in a protected category. So having that objective criteria and being able to rely on, you know, well, even if this person didn't have specific experience here, we felt like they were a better fit for this job because of X, Y, Z is really going to really going to help um, an organization. Being over inclusive, um, considering, you know, certain um, we've been talking about protected categories, but other things like first generation college graduates, you know, maybe someone has had a, an opportunity to volunteer at a lot of uh, you know, nonprofits and take a lot of internships like that. And maybe that's because, um, you know, they are from a wealthier family that's been able to help support them while they've taken on these, you know, taken on these unpaid internships. So just thinking about all those sorts of things when you're looking at someone's resume, um, being conscious of your implicit bias and looking at the, oh, this is the, you know, someone like me, um, that sort of, uh, you know, where we have so much in common. Um, and then that's, you know, one way that people of certain races, um, classes and everything, you know, continue to go through an organization. So, so keeping that in mind. Um, another big thing, when a lot of people think about diversity and inclusion um, initiatives, they're thinking quotas. Um, and, you know, you, you do want to be aware of quotas and avoid quotas. They've been held to be illegal under a lot of circumstances. So, you know, the, the objective isn't necessarily just, okay, well, we're going to hire, you know, 10 women in this position, 10 minorities into this position. Um, and so you don't want to, to structure, um, you know, your, your hiring practice around that. Or um, similarly, you know, only focus on hiring minorities um, and excluding individuals who may not be in the targeted group. Um, again, that goes back to the, you know, potentially a reverse discrimination claim. 
Um, and, you know, the EEOC, um, you know, has issued guidance being wary of the reverse discrimination, too. Um, and that's something that courts have upheld in, in numerous circumstances, that if you are just targeting one particular group and bringing people on based upon uh, that protected category, that, that that itself is discrimination. And so um, I have seen that happen, too. People say, well, we wanted to increase our diversity initiative, so we just hired this person because of their race. And then you're, you're essentially admitting to intentional discrimination there. So um, again, going, you know, back to that objective criteria, making sure that you're, you know, hiring and recruiting managers or employees, um, you know, have, have some training in um, implicit bias, unconscious bias, um, and that you really are being, again, over-inclusive and looking at a wide, wide range of people and uh, candidates when you're trying to hire into an organization. Quick follow-up question about that objective criteria you mentioned. Um, you can develop that criteria for each new position that you're hiring for. Is that correct? Yeah, you can you can do that um, definitely for even positions that you already have in the organization. You know, you're always free to revise a job description, but definitely when you when you're having someone coming in, um, I think it's really important to look at you know what are uh, what are the real qualifications do we need um, you know that we need for this position? Um, and for example, you know, a college degree might be a big thing, or some other um, work experience that may end up being a barrier to diverse candidates coming in. Um, you know, what really are we going to be wanting this position, you know, the person in this position to do? Um, and, you know, are there other, you know, personality factors that can come in? And that, you know, that's, again, something where you have to be really careful about unconscious or implicit bias. But, you know, is this going to be, for example, in nonprofits, um, you know, fundraising is something that's so important. So when you have someone in a fundraising position, is this really going to be someone who's going to be, you know, able to, uh, go out, talk to a lot of people. Are they going to be too nervous? You know, you're think, really thinking about that. And I think it's helpful to do that, um, like we were just saying, before you're hiring for the position. So think about it before, you know, you start seeing candidates and you start getting resumes in, but really thinking about, um, and that really, I think it helps guide the decision as well. I mean, that, and that's really important. And what about for existing staff? So far, we've talked about um, DEI and how it might apply to hiring new staff. Um, Abby, what are some considerations that nonprofits should keep in mind as they develop DEI programs for their existing workforce? Uh, this is such a great question. Um, and I think that this is um, actually where a lot of companies run into issues, it's with existing staff. I think the first thing um, is you really want to actively communicate what you're doing with um, your DEI and initiatives and program um, and make sure that current employees understand this. What you don't want is for, um, and this is another area where we see litigation, uh, current employees will start saying, well, I wasn't promoted or considered for this position because they're just bringing in minority candidates or candidates of this protected group. And so, you know, act first, actively communicating, you know, making sure your current employees understand, you know, what the company is trying to do and why it's important to have a diverse workforce is, is something, you know, very big. And, and then going back to those objective criteria, you know, when those are in place, it makes it easier to have these sorts of conversations, with, which, you know, certainly can be very difficult with your current staff. 
as well as actively communicating. Um, you know, you want to make sure that your employment policies and trainings have all been updated. In Georgia, particularly, um, there was a huge Supreme Court case, uh, and this was nationwide. This was Bostock, but um, affected Georgia as a state that did not have any um, statewide protections for uh, gender identity and sexual orientation. So you also want to make sure that, um, you know, now that this is considered a protected class in light of in Title VII, that employees are aware of this, um, that they understand there's no discrimination, no retaliation based on those protected categories. So that's, a, that's something that I think is pretty big. Also, with your employment policies, you know, keep your, your training. I know it's something that's not not really fun, um, except for the employment lawyers like me, but most people do not consider employment law training fun. But it really is important for your for your staff, making sure that your training is relevant, that you know, workplace harassment training is up to date, your bias training, EEO, equal employment opportunity training. And uh, you know, particularly for your, your your managers, again, anyone that's sort of in the line of fire with employees. Something else that we've seen that can be really helpful are um, employee resource groups and implementing these throughout the organization can really help with the existing employees. So that might be a, you know, a women's initiative group, a black woman's initiative group. Maybe you have a resource group for disabled employees. And so that can really help employees, you know, that are already with the organization start to feel that inclusion as well, you know, that it's not just, oh, we're bringing in other people to up our diversity quota, you know, they're actually looking at us and want to make us feel like we're part of the group of the company. Um, so I've seen those be very successful just in terms of also, you know, giving visibility to diversity within an organization and, and just being a resource for other employees in that particular protected category. Another thing to you know, certainly keep in mind, um, you know, may be obvious, may not be obvious, but certainly don't um, just start actively discharging the non-target employees or withholding them back from promotion. As we just, you know, talked about reverse discrimination claims are out there um, and they can get some traction. And so, you know, just to, if you're, you know, trying to increase diversity, again, one way to, you know, do it, you don't just go fire. If maybe you're in an organization that has a lot more women than men, you know, shouldn't just go fire all the women just to, just to make room for, for more diverse employees. So that is something to keep in mind too. And, you know, and part of the, you know, the overall, I mean, increasing diversity, but, you know, the inclusion part of it, making sure that all employees do feel like part of the group. And so again, you want to be very, um, you know, aware that you're not just making certain individuals feel like they're on the outs now that they're going to be targeted. So that's just, you know, something really important to keep in mind too. And again, that's where we do see a fair amount of EEOC charges or, uh, and that, you know, can eventually turn into litigation. So, you know, being mindful of your existing employees and not just making your efforts recruiting and hiring um, new diverse employees. Abby, um, let's talk about a specific example now about DEI programs in the workplace. And you kind of alluded to this in your answer to the first question. What if an organization wants to conduct a diversity audit and collect information about their current staff or board? These metrics may provide an understanding for an employer, not just about where they currently stand, but that information may even be requested as part of a grant application or for board recruitment. What should a nonprofit keep in mind if they're considering a diversity audit? 
This is another great question. Um, diversity audits became huge. I think, I mean, this is one of the things that as employment attorneys, maybe after COVID, we were talking about so much last year in light of, um, you know, Me Too movement, George Floyd, these really were pushed to the forefront. So there's a few things that, you know, an organization should keep in mind. I mean, one, you you may already be collecting some information through your EEO1 reports if you're required to file those. However, those probably are not going to really have a lot of the, they don't really dig deep into really getting to you know the meat of what you really want to to look at, I think for for a real diversity audit. So, one keep in mind it, it is possible. One of the biggest legal issues, I think, let's say you do conducted a diversity audit under cert- certain circumstances, that potentially could be something that would be discoverable in a lawsuit about discrimination. Um, so let's say you do a diversity audit, maybe you find out that, oh, wow, actually, we haven't promoted any minorities within the organization in the last five years. And then you get an EEOC charge, you know, that that's something that, that could be an issue. So one way, and I know that this is, um, you know, maybe more difficult for a nonprofit to do, but, you know, working with an attorney, there may be some sort of privilege that can attach to it. And that could be, you know, I think very helpful if, if you are worried about the metrics of, of your organization. Um, that's where, you know, I mean, I don't, to the extent you're able to find someone to help you pro bono, but, but just something to, to keep in mind, um, you know, if, and if you have like a written report versus sometimes there's just an, an oral report, but, but keeping in mind that, yes, it is, you know, possible that a diversity audit could come up in a lawsuit. So if you are doing a written report, you know, maybe not, it appears we've had a history of discriminating <laughs> against this group of people, you know, so, um, you know, phrasing it something like our, our goals and areas of focus are X, Y, Z group or, or something like that. So being, being careful about the language that you might use. So, so that's a, that's a big one. So, you know, something else, I think looking at uh, the way that affirmative action plans, and these are typically plans that companies do when they are working as a government contractor, mostly as a federal contractor, but also on the state or even city level. And these are a good way to think about doing a diversity audit too, because again, they're not focusing on, you know, necessarily specific quotas in a position. I mean, they are looking at the numbers, people in protected groups that are in a position, but the focus on an affirmative action plan is something I just referenced. You're looking at what is your your focus? What are your goals for where you want to see see your organization. So again, rather than maybe focusing on, you know, historical discrimination that you haven't been able to fill a position with minorities or women, you're looking on, okay, you know, we're noticing that um, there might be a, a gap in our numbers here. And another thing that AAP plans do, affirmative action plans, they're usually compared with um, data from the local population. So, so that's important too. If you're an organization that's just in Atlanta, I mean, you want to look at, you know, what are, what's the population like in Atlanta and is our workforce accurately reflecting, um, not just demographics nationwide, because that can be difficult, but the demographics of our city. And so that's a more accurate um, benchmark and and goals, way to set your goals, looking at your specific population. But again, affirmative action plans, there's not going to be, you know, a specific, you don't want to have a quota like what we just talked about. Oh, we're going to fill X number of people. But okay, we want to focus on, you know, filling this position with 
more people with disabilities. And so what are we going to do in terms of our outreach and recruiting efforts? Um, are we going to look for local organizations, work with individuals who have disabilities to help put them in this place? Are we working, you know, uh, veteran recruiting is big with AAP plans, um, you know, maybe something different for a nonprofit, but but something to use as a, as a good model for a diversity audit. I do think it's very important for companies to be doing these because, as you mentioned, it, this could be something that is requested as part of a grant application or board recruitment. I think this is something that is becoming um, more common. I mean, even in, in law firms, we're seeing a lot of companies don't want to work with law firms unless they can show that they're diverse and that they're going to have diverse attorneys on it. So it's really something that's everywhere, um, you know, not just nonprofits. And I mean, to a certain extent, stuff... It, your organization is what it is. I mean, you can't fake these numbers. You can't suddenly make up that you have diverse people when you don't. Um, and I think, you know, companies are starting to be aware of, oh, we're going to, you know, I'll have all these diverse candidates that have only been with the company for six months. What does this tell us? So on one hand, you know, you do kind of want to start looking at these things before you're presented with, oh, here's this huge grant that we were up for, but we're not even going to be eligible to apply for it because we don't have our numbers in place. And so it really is something that's that's so important. But again, you know, to, I think um, it, it is what it is. You can't go and just, you know, magically change your numbers. So start looking at it. And again, focus on your recruiting and, you know, your efforts there. What, what are we doing to get more diverse people coming in? So I think that that is really helpful. And one last thing on that, don't come up with goals that you know you can't keep. We see that sometimes too. People say, you know, okay, well, we're going to try to, to get this grant. We're going to say, this is our goal. And, and you just know you're not going to be able to keep it. And that's just setting yourself for, for up for failure. So really try and be realistic with what you think you can do. Um, those are all really fantastic pointers. But what if an employee does not want to participate in a diversity audit or is hesitant about divulging information on a questionnaire, whether it's because they haven't even disclosed it generally to anyone at the office or for other reasons. What should an employer do in that kind of a situation? This is another one that's really big. And I think, I mean, a lot of times we still think of protected groups as being very obvious, you know, that you could see someone's, you know, race or gender tell that, you know, right away um, that a disability could be obvious. And that's just not, that is just not true at all. And so, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, given that protected groups have had, you know, a history of systemic discrimination, country, world, um, people are very concerned about self-identification. Um, and so this could include, you know, it not only includes gender, race, but also, um, you, you know, uh, veteran status, disability status, um, sexual orientation, and gender identity. Um, Self-identification is legally, generally, this is optional for an employee to do. And you, as an organization, you may have a legal obligation to report what, how employees are self-identifying. So this could be, again, we were just talking about federal contractors. And one sort of interesting pitfall that can happen with federal contractors is that you can't overrule how an employee self-identifies either generally under those purposes. So if some employee, you know, they say, well, I don't have a disability, but, you know, maybe you think otherwise, I mean, you can't go in and say, no, your self-identification is wrong. So um, how an employee self-identifies is how they're going to self-identify. If they don't want to participate in a diversity audit, you know, it's possible, uh, depending on the context, that you could discipline them. But I would really 
encourage an employer not to do that. Um, I don't think that really sets the right tone that you want for your you, for your diversity and inclusion program. Um, and so, you know, that that is sort of a, a, a struggle. Um, so what the other things that I think an employer can do to encourage self-identification, you know, to the extent anything, there could be an anonymous avenue for reporting, an anonymous survey, or some way for employees to, to report any sort of diverse identity. I think that's really helpful. That's not always possible, particularly in smaller organizations, but that's something that you can try. Also, communicating the benefits of self-identification and how it's important to the company's goals of diversity and inclusion, you know, saying it really does matter to the company that you provide this information to us, and also stressing that it will be kept confidential as much as possible. And I think also telling Telling employees who will have access to the data is also also very helpful. I think a lot of times employees think, well, this their survey or, you know, they're going to be asked to fill up this questionnaire and it's going to go directly to their supervisor. And a lot of times if you're doing a diversity audit, that's not true. I mean, it could be going to, you know, someone in HR who does, you know, has never even met this person before or it's going to a, a consultant. So, you know, explaining that to employees can help encourage them to self-identify if they don't think, you know, my if you know they they know that their supervisor isn't going to get to see that information or even their coworkers i mean they might think i don't want you know this person who sits in the cubicle next to me to know so relaying all that information you know it, definitely diversity training any time that any time that the company is doing anything to message how important diversity and inclusion is is going to help people you know again feel comfortable stepping up that it's not that they're not being targeted, that, you know, that the company really wants to know about their diverse identity to take it into, you know, into account to the company and how the company can help make them feel more included. So I think that that is really, you know, those are really, because that is, you know, if you don't get that information, that's going to make you doing your diversity audit um, and, and make your efforts really hard. And we mentioned employee resource groups earlier. Those are also a good way if employees see visibility with other individuals and that the company is supporting, you know, okay, this is great. We have this an organization for see that the company is being supportive of them. Um, that can really encourage people to, to self-identify and to feel more comfortable speaking up about something that they um, otherwise would, would not have. And let's finally talk about board recruitment. Abby, you've given us a lot of great insight on hiring practices and working on DEI programs within your existing workforce. But board recruitment is another area that a lot of nonprofits are focusing on as they're trying to diversify their board of directors. Um, what are some considerations for boards as they seek to diversify? Yeah, this is huge. I mean, certainly this is something that we're seeing a lot, even in for-profit sector. We're obviously in Georgia, California, which, for example, has put in some requirements about having females on board. This is huge. And also, you know, I'm probably, this audience will probably know this without convincing, but there's been all these studies that have come out that have stressed, you know, having a more diverse board is actually going to make your company more successful, more financially successful. Um, so it, it is just so important. Um, I think, you know, we were just talking about diversity audits. Knowing the composition of your organization is going to really help with your board. You know, are there large gaps? Are, you know, does, how much does our, the composition of our board line up with the composition of our organization? And then also the, um, you know, the, the population that we're trying to serve in our nonprofit. 
does our is our board reflective of that? Um, are we a racial justice organization that is really lacking minority involvement on the board? Um, so that's sort of the first thing I think. Really, you know, looking at the at who is who is on the board and how does that line up with the organization and your goals. Um, you know, expanding the pipeline. This is something with including employees, but with boards as well. I think a lot of times people say, "Oh, well." You know, our our board is like this because these are the only people, you know, we can find. Stop using that as an excuse. I mean, get out, maybe go to, you know, local MBA programs or other, you know, um, graduate um, programs throughout the city to look for qualified people who could become members of the, the board who are more um, more diverse. One suggestion that I've seen, you know, a, a one issue that a lot of boards have is that there's low turnover. People can hold board seats for a really long time. And another thing to think about, a lot of nonprofit boards have get or give requirements or some other sort of background qualifications. I mean, obviously these are important nonprofits, need fundraising, need money, but are there get or give requirements that are in place that may prevent more diverse candidates um, from being on your board because that's going to be prohibitive. So, you know, maybe look at that, um, evaluate that. Would there be other ways to get funding that we don't require it from, from the board and, and see, has that historically prevented us from getting more diverse candidates? Or again, uh, background qualifications too. Do we, you know, do we have some background, you know, qualification, maybe someone has to be employed for 10 years or something before in this particular field before they can be on the board, is that going to really limit the recruiting for the board? So, so considering something like that too. And I think, uh, you know, again, I just can't stress how important it is to make sure that there's diversity on your board. Um, KPMG put out a board diversity disclosure benchmarking tool. I mean, that's really obviously designed for for-profit companies, but but if you're, if you're really focusing on your board, it might be just helpful to look at some of those materials and just look at what's out there to help, um, you know, what resources are out there for nonprofits and other companies to increase board um, diversity. And, and again, I think that it's, it's really hard to say that you are focusing on DEI initiatives when, you know, whoever is at the top uh, does not reflect diversity. So I think it's a great place to start. Um, and, you know, I, and then you're going to need those voices to help guide your other diversity efforts. I, don't, I think it's really hard to have just one group of people trying to, you know, say how we're going to make everything diverse when, when they're not actually diverse. So um, I think looking at the board is a, is a great a great place to start and a great place for a nonprofit to focus um, when they're starting with their DEI initiatives. Wow, Abby, this was a lot of great information. Um, you shared with us not only important legal considerations, but there was also a lot of good um, practical insight in there as well. So we appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge and expertise with us. Thanks, Abby. All right. Thank you so much. We hope that you found this episode of the PBPA podcast to be informative and helpful. We add new episodes every month with short conversations about general yet important legal information for Georgia nonprofits. Remember that this is not legal counsel. Talk to your attorney about your organization's specific concerns. Thanks for tuning into the PBPA podcast. And to all nonprofits listening out there, Thank you for all the good work you continue to do in our community.